Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. All right, everybody, we're back with episode 233, our first of a two-parter, shockingly enough, with third-time guest, Josh Duffney. The last time uh, we spoke with Josh, I think was back in episode 156 and 157, where we were focusing mainly in about deep focus and smart notes, the Zettelkast and process, and the short form uh, book that he wrote. And before that, we also spoke to him mostly about his career progression. That was episodes 123 and 124. Uh, we talked about him being a Pluralsight author, a community participant, a DevOps engineer, and his uh, transition from Stack Overflow to Microsoft as a technical writer. So that's kind of where we left off with him and his career, and now we're coming back to talk to him again. He was in the middle of writing a book, if I remember correctly, Nick. That's right. He told us about, in those last couple episodes, writing a book called Reclaim, and we are going to dig into where that is, what happened with that, how did it turn out. Yeah. I think that hearing about him and his uh, his long-form authorship, he, he's previously written a book called, is it Become Ansible? Become Ansible, and then How to Take Smart Notes in Obsidian. How to Take Smart Notes in Obsidian is a little bit more of like a novella length right it's like less than 50 pages something like that really cool like tactical how to do something how to how to use obsidian with the zettelkasten method and then become ansible is a little bit more long form but reclaim was a non-technical book and also long form so i think it'd be really cool to listen to the interview listen out for his writing process and then kind of the things that he did to get back to fundamentals with that writing process, with energy management. Those are the things that I would I would point out to listen to, listen for. And I would also pay attention to the parallels to any project you're working on for a long period of time. There are just so many parallels. And then he also talks about this process of getting lost in his career and doing some what he calls career thrashing. What exactly does that mean? And are you there? Huh? Yeah, I thought that was really cool too. And watch for what he calls the pivot. I won't explain that any further. Let's listen to part one of a two-parter with Josh Stephanie 
episode 233. Josh Duffney, welcome back to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. You're you're entering rarefied air as a uh, three-time returner, I think. Um, Excellent. It's a pretty exclusive club. <laughs> well, I'm honored. I'm honored. <laughs> I always enjoy these conversations. Yeah, so it's been great conversations. We um, last left off with you, and you were about to publish a book, or you were in the middle of writing a book, I think. Uh, how did that go? I, I'm pretty curious about that that experience. Well, it was great until I got to really close to the finish line. Um, and then I put some hurdles in my way, like writing other books in the middle of writing that book <laughs> to, ke- to keep me further distracted. But it went really well. But what happened was I finished the book. and I still haven't published it to this day, actually. So it's still the rough drafts done. I've sent it to a couple beta readers, about 10 people have read it, um, incorporated that feedback. And then I just kind of walked away from it and got burned out a little bit, but also realized that I was a little bit lost having finished that project that took me 18 months. So, you know, for probably two to three hours a day for 18 months, I worked on that manuscript. Uh, and then for the last eight months, I've just kind of set it down and walked away and reevaluated where I wanted to take my career. I have a question about that. I wonder because one of the main takeaways that we got with our previous conversations with you was the concept of deep work in the Cal Newport book. Do you think that there's a limit to sustained concentration that that you can hit? Is is that possible? Yes. Uh, so a lot of the the disciplines that require deep focus, they have, uh, and especially if you listen and you watch the people that have complete autonomy of their time, they acknowledge that there's a four hour maximum of creative output. So whether that be coding or writing, they typically hit their limit at four hours. And there's, you can be productive outside of that, but as far as deep concentrative creative work, four hours seems to be the absolute maximum cap for, for most humans. Uh, and then beyond that, you could kind of, you know, read and digest and ponder and stuff like that. But for me, three hours was probably pushing it just time-wise, you know, waking up early in the morning and then trying to find some time in the afternoon or evening because I have a full-time job as well while doing this. So I was doing that plus the eight hours of whatever work was required for the job. And so I found like two and a half, three hours was absolute maximum, 90 minutes while having all that other stuff, being a full-time employee, being a husband and being a father, 90 minutes a day of deep work was was probably the most sustainable amount um, of, of focus time. For this project, right? Because you would still have to have yeah. some deep work time for your full-time job. Go ahead yep. and say what that is just so that people get that now. And we'll sure. So uh, when I was writing the nonfiction book, it was technical writing. So I would be switching from writing the nonfiction in the morning, and then I would have to go and do whatever deep work I would need to, or just daily work for being a technical writer. And so it was just I was probably hitting every day anywhere from four to six hours of writing. I guess where I was heading with my question was, do you think that there is a limit for maxing out your deep work on a daily basis over a long period of time. For example, you said, you know, three, maybe three and a half hours was, was where you were maxing out. Do you think that 
doing that for 18 straight months was not sustainable. Like that hit some limit that like you were out of resources after that. I think had I switched focus, I would have been fine. But it was the solid effort blinders on on a single thing that didn't where I didn't let myself see anything outside of that project. That's where I got into trouble, more or less, you know, with career trajectory, so to speak. Um, but I think it's a very sustainable amount of time for for deep focus. But in that, I did learn that it, you should toggle on and off um, what your focus is, because I think that's more where I got into trouble, not necessarily the time invested, but in being so blind in um, where I was headed. Were you just writing first draft or were you trying to do a little bit of editing along the way? Oh, all of it all the time. <laughs> That's, so it started, um, well, I hadn't really written anything other than a technical book before I started this project. So I, I learned a lot about writing uh, along the way. And one of those things is to decouple all the different meta processes that are inside of writing. So in the very beginning, it was super painful because as I was writing, I was trying to do all the processes. I was trying to you know, get the rough draft out and get the idea out and outline and edit and revise and critique as I wrote the paragraphs. And so I, I realized that wasn't sustainable after a little while and a lot of pain and then learned that you you actually have to do those in separate phases where you kind of have to collect the general knowledge that you need with through research and then you have to kind of uh, roadmap your ideas and an outline so to speak and some people tend to go just into the, the rough draft so I tried both outline and then just just diving into the rough draft but you have to then get the garbage of the idea out or at least the rough shell which typically looks like garbage um, but you have to allow yourself that time to kind of get out what you're thinking and then you can go back through and revise and edit so i did towards the end learn that those are separate processes that you need to to take independently uh, in your deep work session so you know a block of time dedicated to the draft a block of time dedicated to revision and peer review and all that good stuff the other question i have is about the Zettelkasten and uh, smart notes stuff that we talked to you about. You're pretty instrumental in in us adopting that and advocating for that. I'm I'm wondering if during the process of of writing this book, you were using that to kind of create an outline, organize thoughts or parts of the book as oh, I already have a note that kind of is the the general theme of that. I have a bunch of notes that I could plug in here, some notes like, oh, here's where I have nothing and I'm going to need to create from scratch, but I do have some rough research that I could turn into notes. Uh, I, I guess now that I've talked out that entire process, which is kind of a fantasy process, obviously, in my mind. Leading the witness, your honor. Yeah, yeah. Is that something <laughs> that you actually did or, um, or not? I attempted, um, and it, with varying degrees of success, I would say the biggest benefit I got from all the various note-taking systems that I built, so I did a, a number of different methods in that time, Zettelkasten being one, uh, and then an adaptation of that being my own, and then the para method, which is building a second brain. Uh, and ultimately, in the end, what I carry on today is kind of a combination of those, you know, my own adaptation of them. But the biggest benefit that I got from them was the huge boon in comprehension that I got from what I was consuming. So that was the greatest benefit that I saw from there. Now, the process that you described there, which is the dream for every writer out there that adopts a note-taking system, is you know that they can become Ryan Holiday or Robert Greene or uh, Nicholas uh, Lumen, who was the, the guy that invented the Zittlecasten method, where 
you know, they just kind of walk through resources, read and collect notes. And then they wake up one day and there's this manuscript outlined beautifully in these notes. And I was never able to really get that to happen as far as the notes were concerned. There was definitely areas where knowledge would build up and I would feel confident that I could write a chapter based on the number of notes I had in an area. But I typically didn't use a lot of the knowledge that was in the notes for the rough draft. And the reason was because I had spent so much time with the material, it was already in my brain. And so when I went to go write the rough draft, I didn't need to rely on those crutches so much because of the repetition that I had through thinking about them, writing them as permanent notes. And so it wasn't necessarily that they were useless, but that their utility was in solidifying my own understanding and building my own mental models that I could use to write and not necessarily building a perfect structure from the notes that I invested. It was actually the act of writing the notes that was the biggest benefit um, and return on investment versus the artifact of the notes after the fact. Wow. So I see so many parallels here. It sounds like, in a way, you got lost in the subject matter that you were writing about in much the same way you mentioned you kind of got lost in your career. Do you feel like it's because you were working on your first nonfiction book as opposed to, or nonfiction and non-technical book? As compared to previous writings, which were more technical, you know, the one about Ansible, for example, Become Ansible, and then the How to Take Smart Notes book? Yeah, because I didn't really know where I was going. And so without that clear stopping point, you you just kind of continue and continue and continue. You, you mentioned that you didn't switch things up enough. I was thinking about how sometimes the switching things up allows other things we've been working on to process or it gives a little time to, I don't know, John, de-stage down to, <laughs> down to long-term storage. Yeah, it's like letting the, the unconscious part of your brain chew over problems as opposed to trying to use your kind of active cognition 100% of the time on the problems that you're trying to solve. I mean, I think that's probably a model of the brain, not how the brain actually works, but it seems to you know, model something that, that people experience. But again, let's turn that into a question is, do you think that would have helped? Or it's, I guess it's tough to say in retrospect what would or wouldn't have helped. I think if I hadn't been such a dog with a bone with it, uh, it would have definitely helped. There's, It's a very difficult to put into practice, um, but there is a quote in, in Lumen's book or, or a quote in How to Take Smart Notes based on his work where the author is quoting him and saying, I never do anything I don't want to do. When I get bored, I just switch what I'm doing because he would write many manuscripts at once. And I think that's the the long end or the long tail version of that story where you can you have so much knowledge built up that you can do that. Uh, and for whatever reason, I struggle with that quite a bit, which is uh, switching from something I've committed to. I'd rather just see it all the way through to the end. But knowing that I need to let something percolate and put it in the back burner or at least switch tasks a little bit uh, because it, it's just required time. So a funny story to that and a testament is I put down, so Reclaim is the book that we're talking about, the nonfiction book. I put down that manuscript for eight months and I haven't looked at it since and it's been relieving to do so. And then I had a Twitter space just last Friday where someone was talking about the free write, which is a distraction free writing tool. It's just basically like a modern day typewriter that 
send stuff to the cloud versus printing it off on paper. So it is a single purpose device. It keeps you focused on writing, but it also doesn't introduce enough friction for you to say, this is silly, like going back to a typewriter would because there's just too many processes in there. And so I got inspired to pick that manuscript up because the gentleman was talking about writing. And so I printed off the first couple chapters and I just sat on my porch the last few mornings, just reading through the first little bit and editing and revising. And so had I been a little bit more kind to myself and not pushing through so quickly to try to get it across the finish line, I realized that it could have been enjoyable. And I was like, oh, this thing that was tormenting uh, and ended up maybe kind of lost because I put so much focus on it that I took away from where I wanted my career to go. I could have probably done both had I lowered the intensity that I came at it with. Maybe that's what I was leaning towards uh, when I ask about kind of like the draining of resources, it, it's the the intensity. But I also have to say, until you are able to switch between multiple projects and successfully complete one, it's difficult to have faith in the idea that that will work. <laughs> yeah, that any of those projects will be able to get completed. Yeah. Right. So I'm sure you didn't want to turn into um, somebody who was, you know, I'm been working on my first draft for the last 10 years. Yeah. That was the big fear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. And, yeah. And it's, it's a huge fear that a lot of people have. I'm sure there's a different metric out there, you know, something super gross, like productive words written towards your projects, regardless of how, you know, whether you're completing any of them that keeps you writing at that intensity and makes you long-term productive. Right. What I learned is you have to toggle your goals. Um, and that means if you're in the draft phase, words per day or whatever is a fantastic goal to set, but is a horrible goal to set when you're trying to revise because you're actually wanting to subtract words. And so that's going to put you behind. And then where are you at in the project, right? That depends on what your goals should be. Your you kind of like your your productivity metric should be set. Uh, and so I t- I jumbled with that quite a bit to keep me going. But then I realized more recently that it has to be enjoyable, especially these side projects. Like that's the other big mistake that I did with cranking the intensity up all the way is I treated it like providing for my family depended on this thing. And that's a level of intensity that ended up kind of crushing it because it wasn't meant for that. You know, it was a side project that I felt like I needed to do. I had learned some things that I wanted to share and I wanted to put them down on paper And so there's this uh, difference between, in the ultra learning book by Scott Young, he calls them intrinsic and extrinsic motivations for why you're approaching something. And I learned that extrinsic uh, learning things or projects that you're doing, that you're doing for monetary reasons, or you're doing for something outside of yourself, those work really well with goals. So word count, number of words removed for revision if you're talking about a particular thing, but maybe it's a Pluralsight course and you just want to track, I spent 90 minutes on it today, I did a good job, where you have some kind of external incentive. But then there's other projects that you approach that are intrinsic, where it doesn't matter what's attached to them, you feel compelled to do them, and the process of doing them is rewarding, and that's what that project was in the beginning. And I mixed across the wires of the goals that I was setting. So instead of setting a goal for... I invested time in this and I got a reward because I'm doing something that I enjoy. I switched it to crank up the intensity to measure it with words per per day and then keep up with someone like Don Jones who can write 
like 10,000 words in a day. <laughs> you know, like 1,500 was my absolute maximum. But he's been writing for like four decades. But yeah, so that was a big lesson there is matching your goals with the type of motivation you have for the project that you're on. And maybe your skill level and experience at doing it? Helps too, <laughs> to set realistic goals. Right. It was just something you said at the very end of like, well, I'm trying to match the output of somebody who's been working at this for, you know, multiple decades and has this like, you know, fine tuned process and probably is super in tune with maybe even on a day to day basis. Oh, you know, only 9,800 words today. Yeah. What would you have done different, Josh, about that process of finishing the book or at least finishing the draft? or getting the manuscript to where it is, looking back, knowing what you know now. And then I want to dig more into what you know now. Sure. Uh, so the two big things that I would have done differently uh, with the side project, I think it ap applies to any kind of side side hustle creative project um, outside of your day job. I think that's it's safe to say that these two things would help. One was lower the intensity. So lower the amount of mental energy and time that I was putting into the project. Uh, and then two is actually take advice from, it was, I believe it's Kenneth Ashity. So he was one of the directors or screenwriters for Meg, which was that, I believe it's the shark thriller movie, but he's written a number of different books and screenplays and stuff like that. He was a professor for a number of years as well. But in his book, uh, Writer's Time, which is a fantastic book for anybody that's looking to write any kind of nonfiction, he explicitly says, every time you hit a milestone, a milestone, you take two weeks off. You don't touch anything. You don't write anything. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to power through this. You know, <laughs> that's what I thought in my mind. But taking that time off is allows that project to go in that back burner, what we just talked about before. And so what he does is he has what's called an agenda or what most people will call a schedule where you get done with the research of part one, and then you take a two-week break. You research part two, you take a two-week break. You write the rough draft you take a two-week break. You revise part one. Again, two-week break. And so with that schedule, if you invest anywhere from two to three hours a day like I was doing, you should have the project done in a year. And so I was done with a rough draft in under a year. So, you know, cutting out the the vacations from the project, you know, got me ahead of schedule, but it got me to the point where I was like, I don't want to pull this across the finish line as well. So those two things, lowering the intensity and making sure that you're setting the project down, especially if it's a long one, like any of my Pluralsight courses, they're three months. That's, I think, a, probably the maximum amount of time that I would spend on a single project before I break. But if I were to take a another Pluralsight course, there would be a month buffer in between those two. And so I didn't put in those buffers. Um, so any long project or any small projects that are linked should be spaced by a little bit of downtime. Are you talking about straight downtime or are you talking about switching off projects. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you never get out of the out of the habit of writing. Well, you might so there's typically when you put the blinders on, there's all these little things that uh they're not necessarily leisure or whatnot, but they're things that you're excited to learn or do. It, you know, maybe in my research for the book, I came across another book um, that was really exciting, but it's not pertinent to the topic. And so what I would do is I had this massive list and stack that I would buy because I wanted to read them later. I wouldn't allow myself to even pick them up because I was focused on reclaim, right? And that was some of them were technical books and some of them were financial books. 
Uh, and so in those two weeks, that's the opportunity for you. Um, Kenneth Atchity calls it the depression list as well. And so like typically when you achieve something you have, and I believe uh, Andrew Huberman talks about this too, where you hit a dopamine rush, you're going to have an equal response as a crash for that dopamine response. So you finish your rough draft, you're super stoked. You're going to experience a low from that. And so what Kenneth Atchity came up to kind of pull you out of that is like have this list of things that inspires you and interests you to kind of pick you back up to level off what Andrew Huberman would call your dopamine levels. And so that'll pick you back up and level you off. And then you're ready to start, you know, after that two week period of vacation to enter the next phase of that project. It's so fascinating to hear that other people have gone through this process, that it's fairly consistent from person to person enough to, you know, have some models and patterns and, and some coping mechanisms. And of course, in the hubris of, of being a human being go, well, I don't need any of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we also have, it happens at work too. So this has all been in the context of a, a personal creative side project, but the same thing happens to me at work sometimes where I get a project across the finish line. I finally got buy-in from executives, you know, da, da, da. And then we push it to production. And then the whole engineering team is less productive for a week or two as they rescope, as they select their next target and metrics. And we go through this recalibration phase as a team to do that. It's easy to see in hindsight, but um, that's definitely something that I had removed as something that would be increasing efficiency in air quotes for those that can't see in the recording. But yeah, it's long-term energy management is what that is. Cause yeah, yeah on yeah. previous discussions with you, you talked about managing your energy over the course of a day. And we talked about deep work sessions and how you would work out in the morning to help you help give you the energy for that day. But this is a little bit more longer term, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You need uh, like rhythms. Yeah. Just the idea of recontextualizing off of a major phase of a major project that's been dominating a big part of your professional or personal life. The idea that that would take time and energy and like you say, it should be obvious to us. It should be, but it's a lesson that you've got to learn like several times. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that. And I can definitely see that pattern in myself and in the past now that you call it out <laughs> it's so obvious right well that's what i love so much about um watching kelsey hightower talk about his different things you know he's just, uh, for those who don't know don't know him he's a distinguished engineer at google uh mostly known for kubernetes i admire him a lot because he he's both very ambitious but he's also very kind to himself and that's a very uh rare balance to see in people for me definitely that's been not how it's been. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to be ambitious, I kind of have to be a little bit hard on myself, right? To push myself. Uh, but then allowing some of that slack to come, come into play so I can kind of recover, uh, which is part of being kind to yourself. When you stop something you've been working on for that long, there has to be this feeling that creeps in of, oh, I should be doing the thing because like, that's what I do. That's what I've been doing. Why am I not doing it now? Dude, get up, go do the thing. Oh, wait, I'm not doing that today. Almost like what we heard from Tom Hollingsworth in episode 125 or so, or 127, where he was talking about after he got his CCIE, he just felt this need that he should be working in his lab and he couldn't hardly sit still. How, what was it like for you? 
Oh, very rest, restless. So in the, the Twitter thread, uh, my tech career resurrection, I talk about that a little bit where I went through this massive thrashing period. And so I realized like right after the rough draft was done, that's actually when a lot of the smart notes uh, stuff started happening for me. And so I that energy and that routine was so ingrained and that uh, intensity and velocity of going at something uh, was there. And so I would just, I started like latching on to certain things. And for a little bit, it was the smart notes and then it was the YouTube stuff. And then it, it started to come back to technology a little bit, but I was, was no longer in my previous discipline of operations and site. I wasn't a site reliability engineer anymore, which I'd spent a decade doing. And I was now in this new space where I was a technical writer, but I was learning programming at the same time. And so, yeah, it was a, a very chaotic time in that period where that that habit just kept me propelled forward bashing my head into walls until finally all that energy kind of got spent and i realized i wasn't going anywhere and i had to start to slow down and kind of re-examine and that's uh, right around the time luckily that i got to switch into my current role as a, a a cloud advocate on the cloud native team inside Microsoft. And so through that, and then the leadership there and Steve Morowski is now uh, a teammate of mine, if you know who he oh, yeah. is. Uh, so he's been very helpful. And I've started to reach out to different mentors to to pull me back a little bit to re-examine where I want to go and not necessarily spend that energy poured into something that has an output like a book or a course or something like that. And yeah, just look at a longer view and recalibrate. What's interesting there, Josh, is in past times when we've spoken with you, you, you've talked about looking 10 years out, you seem to have a lot of very clear focused goals. So for the listeners out there, along the lines of what you just said, how can they determine if they've hit that same, I don't know if it's a valley, maybe, maybe a valley. Plateau. Plateau. Okay. So I'm a little bit lost now. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, but how do you do a better job of noticing you're there, I guess, is my question. For me, it was I, the best way to describe it was I was just lost. Because like you've said before in my in the past, it was, I always have a direction I'm heading. And so there's kind of two parts of this conversation, one I'll pin for later, which is knowing when to pivot. So there's uh, persevere and pivot. Well, I kind of pin that for a conversation point. Mm -hmm. um, but just just realizing that you're a little bit lost and you, you're feeling a little bit complacent. So a number of years ago, I wrote a blog post called Be an Engineer. And that was my experience of, of lifting myself out of that complacency of just kind of doing the job and letting go of the career. And then I read Be the Master, which is now Own Your Tech Career by Don Jones. And that got me to, you know, the level where I am now. And then I hit another plateau two years later. And that's the plateau we're talking about here. Here's a good tell. Your manager comes to you and asks you, what's your career aspirations? And you have no answer other than maybe from, I, I, I would say you have no absolute answer. That's when you're absolutely lost where I was because I had hit the senior track. I didn't know really what was above that. I didn't want to go into the manager track. Beyond that's just principle, but that seems to be a different type of role. And do I, do I want that? And I didn't have any clear answer. So if, if you have no clear answer when your manager approaches you, like, what do you want to do with your career? That's the time not to double down and speed up, but to step back and really, really reevaluate career. And maybe you want to switch or maybe you want to get to the next stage. Sometimes you got to invest in identifying what the potential next stages are. And that's what I'm currently doing. So that, that would be the best advice I can give for people that are kind of feeling that way, but they're not sure. And if your manager isn't asking you, 
we can link back to... You can ask yourself. Yeah, you can ask <laughs> yourself, and we can link you back to some other episodes that might help. Career Conversations with Your Manager, episode 45 being one of those. But yeah, it's definitely check in with yourself on that. Is this still the thing I want to do, or do I not know? What do I want to do next? I like that. I have a question about that energy level, though. You mentioned coming off of that, and there's the kind of dopamine valley, but still this innate energy that you felt like you needed. Well, the process that you used was to thrash. Is there a way to manage that energy to to bring consciously bring yourself down, taper off? I, I guess in retrospect, you know, what would be the things that you've tried since then or the things that you would would try to to try to come off of a major project milestone and instead of thrashing on a bunch of other things, you know, con- be conscious about your energy level and and bring it down over over time without thrashing. Well, what's interesting is my energy level was probably the same as like how I felt, right? My energies felt the same, but that habit and that momentum was there that drove me to do all that thrashing. Uh, and I th- there's probably one thing that worked against me more than it would most other people, which is all the things that I've done to uh, remove excess technology from my life. So during that 18 month period, I didn't have a smartphone. I had a, a light phone, which is a, you know, a dumb phone. It can be a hotspot, call text, and that's about it. And then I also limit my screen time and distraction. So I don't really have any games and stuff like that. So one of the biggest reasons why I went headlong into that thrashing period was there were no distractions that I allowed into my life to actually diffuse that a little bit. And so I've had this idea for a while, and this seems like a perfect opportunity to explore it, but there's this concept that I've had called purposeful distractions. And I think that is the time period where that excess energy, it needs somewhere to go and you need to rebuild habits. So I'm not saying, you know, you need to do like a two week binge because Diablo 4 just came out and that's the way to deal with it. But I do think that they have a place in kind of diffusing that. Um, Some of the more productive, I guess, or helpful outlets that I've had is, you know, revising my workout routine or trying to get out in nature more um, and those different things going on longer walks, all super hard habits to keep going. But in those those times where you need that excess energy to go somewhere, those are fantastic avenues to explore. So those are the, a couple things that I've had um, that I've doors that I've reopened, uh, so to speak, to try to find outlets for that excess momentum and energy. I suppose your um, the the depression uh, book pile is a, is another potential. Yep, yep, another one. Yeah, yeah it's a catchy okay. name. Uh, it's a little yeah, it's a sad because it's depression, but I mean, it does. You know, you have your your read it later list, um, and sometimes you just like I can't can't even read right now, and so that's where more active type things. I would love to say that I'm the person like oh, I've just one of my like Richard uh, Campbell. He's like oh well, I just got a kayak in the lake out here, and so I jump in the the kayak with my dog when you know, when I need a little bit of a recharge, I'd love to be that person someday, you know, where I can just escape to nature and recharge or go fishing and stuff like that. But definitely not habits that I currently have. Sure. And any other super manly activities? Yeah. Yeah. I, I built a shed, you know, or something. <laughs> I wrestled a bear. I, you know. <laughs> I wrestled my kid and won this time. Yeah. <laughs> and notice none of the answers were Oh, you know what? I just binged on Twitter for four hours a day again. I like the fact that you didn't go back to that as a, quote, purposeful distraction. So that tells me 
if I'm thinking right, that you might classify that as still an unpurposeful distraction. In that way. So like uh, Twitter for me, so I'm still on Twitter. Um, that's how we connect most of the time. But Twitter's purpose for me is is networking. You know, it's to talk to people that I don't normally get to talk to, that I don't have a Slack channel with. So I don't have to have 70 Slack channels. That's mainly why I have Twitter. And so that's its purpose. So yeah, scrolling too much on Twitter wouldn't be wouldn't have been a purposeful distraction. It'd be a mindless one and it would probably work to a degree, but I think something else would be better. All social media included, not just Twitter, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think going back to our previous conversation, you're you're building up these um these circuits of distraction and interruption, which is not going to help in the next sprint or area where you need some sustained, intense, deep focus. Absolutely. Tell us about that distinction between the pivot and persevere points that you mentioned earlier. Was it? So we'll just kind of recap a little bit. So I was at um, Stack Overflow. So one interesting that ha- thing that happened was I was awarded the Microsoft MVP, which had been a decade long dream of mine. Um, I got accepted as an S3 at Stack Overflow, which had also been close to a decade dream of mine to get that position and to work with those people. Uh, And then I finished my first self-published book, which was Become Ansible. That all happened within the span of a couple months. And so like sitting there and then getting kind of integrated into being an S3 at Stack, I just kind of looked into the the future and I was like, I think I was 31 or 32 at the time. Um, I'll be 34 in October for for time reference, but um, I was like, do I? I've got a lot of runway left in my career. You know, do I see myself staying in this role relatively, or moving into a director role, which I didn't see at that time, like in the next five to ten years? Uh, and so then the opportunity came up um, at Microsoft to be a content developer, technical writer. And after a lot of debate and uncertainty, that was probably the most uncertain decision I made. I just decided to change uh, disciplines into that. And after talking to Snover on a Twitter space, I realized that there's two types of transitions that you can have or pivots in your career. One of them is what I'll call visionary. And so if you look at Snover's career, that one was the perseverance he had to see PowerShell to the end. And so he pivoted into that and he stuck with it to see it to the end. And then there's other ones where he joined like the 365 team for a little bit as a technical fellow, I believe. And that was just an opportunity that presented itself. And so there's some examples of pivoting, right? Where opportunity comes and you just, you kind of take a leap of faith. And that's what I did as the technical writer. Now to dive a little bit deeper into the pivot, you also can recognize that you need to. So I had spent about 18 months fully immersed in writing, you know, writing for my job and writing for nonfiction. And then Eventually, the writing for the job, because it didn't have as much of the problem-solving aspects that programming does and coding has, or even this rework, I missed that type of interaction. I actually discovered that the problem-solving itself was the more enjoyable thing versus writing, and writing was the side thing that I enjoyed. And so I had flipped kind of uh, where I get my motivations from, or enjoyment and fulfillment for my work. And so I realized at that point that I needed I needed to pivot out of this discipline. I had learned a lot. I enjoyed it, um, but I wanted to switch into something that let me do both of them. And that's where the the cloud advocate role came up, where I do get to do uh, both of those roles and blessed to have the opportunity to do like a kind of a 50-50 split almost of those two. But that was just enough self-awareness that, okay, I thought I was really going to like this. I don't see myself long-term 
seeing this out to become some kind of like uh, James Clear level nonfiction writer or even anything a hundredth or millionth of as successful as he was. I think his book sold five million copies, but I didn't want to do do that. I didn't see myself kind of going down that road, and then I also didn't see myself um, staying in the technical writing for more than a couple of years. And so that was just some self-awareness where I had to say, I need, I need to pivot again. And how long did you stay in the technical writing from beginning to end? About 18 months. What were the um, things about technical writing that made you realize that you weren't going to be in it long-term? I think you mentioned lack of coding. Mm-hmm. I think that was something that emerged towards the end, but there must've been other things. Well, the other thing was uh, just the writing became, it became a job. And I realized that I didn't enjoy that. I didn't enjoy that job as much as I enjoyed the coding job or solving problems through, through coding. And so that was, those are the two major nudges that I got when I evaluated it. The thing that you thought would bring you energy actually began to take the energy. Yeah. Interesting. One thing that's worth noting is it seems easy that I made those decisions kind of lightly, like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to pivot now again. It sounds like that when I talk about it, but those were very uncomfortable things to do. Like the very first pivot from SRE to technical writing, uh, because what happened was you lose all your confidence, essentially, because you're losing all your competence and your discipline. And so for a long time, probably that first year in technical writing uh, was uncomfortable just because I didn't feel the same competence level that I felt as an SRE, right? Being kind of more or less at the top of my game there versus starting over again. It's like, you know, I use a lot of video game analogies. So it's like playing with your level 99 character or, you know, you know, maybe 70, something like that, right? 99 is the max. And then starting over a new character, different class. And new level. Just your limited new level. But you're playing on a different setting. You're playing, you're not back on easy. You're on normal or hard or whatever it is. And that same thing happened uh, when I switched into DevRel because it's, it's uh, kind of combining both, but it's 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 its own new thing, uh, and it's it's relatively unmapped, right? As far as like a career ladder progression or what your roles are, it depends on who you are and what you're talking about greatly to what you do, you know, and what's expected of you. Uh, and then I realized there was this great quote in the technical manager's handbook: the phrase is "growth through ambiguity." And so I learned finally that at the level, at a senior level. A lot of the problems that you are that you should work on are going to be ambiguous to leadership, and it's your responsibility to identify them and scope them and to work on them. The organization is looking to you to find those problems and to solve them versus, you know, where I came from on the help desk, which is there's a ticket, I solve it, move on to the next one where they're really predefined problems. Um, so, yeah, all that was part of the decision making or the journey. I like the video game analogy because. Just like starting off a new journey, new character, you have to build up the experience points along the way to get to those levels where your hit points on enemies goes up and up and up. And to me, that's I can make a bigger impact now because I've seen this or done this. And when you've switched around like that through the different roles, you've seen a lot of different things. And a pattern that you saw somewhere else might be something that you see appearing in this new domain that you are fresh to, and it might allow you to solve a problem there, find that ambiguous issue and match some sort of construct or pattern onto it so you can go after it and solve it. 
Did you have any insight from the previous roles that came into these new ones and and you just suddenly realized, oh, wait, this is a different version of this problem? So what I would say is anyone that's looking to pivot their career is that you want to pivot as close to your domain of expertise as you can. Uh, and so this is a lesson that I learned the hard way where I, you know, so as uh, SRE, and so I knew a lot of the operation stuff, knew a lot about infrastructure as code and DevOps. And then I went into technical writing to an adjacent discipline, which is writing about Ansible and writing about Terraform, which are configuration management and infrastructure as, tool, uh, infrastructure as code tools. Uh, and so that was a, an easier pivot for me. And so my confidence didn't take as much of a hit. However, I then moved on to being the lead writer for Go. I don't have a CS background. I had I don't I hadn't learned a formal programming language before. I knew PowerShell really well and some other higher level languages, but there were a lot of gaps in that. And pivoting to that, so if my confidence was like cut in half, that one was the negative when I started that role. Uh, and so it took a long time and energy to get skilled up in that. And what was interesting in my current role and what I've done since was, um, so I started and I was like, okay, well, I need to learn Go and I need some practical stuff. So I started dabbling in web development, and which is not a discipline that I had. I've always been back-end systems. And it was hard. And I was like, okay, well, I can start over as like a web developer, I guess, but that's not going to work because I'm at a senior level and the web developers at my level are just going to destroy me. And so what I ended up doing was finding a path um, in what I'm working on now, which is uh, container security, essentially, uh, and a lot of these tools that are written in Go, but they're command line tools. And I have a decade of experience using command line tools. And I have a lot of opinions about what a good command line tool is. And so I was again able to attach to that existing domain of experience. But on the other side, I'm now working on developing the tools and writing the code for the tools versus using them or stringing them together in scripts. And so that would be my advice there for people that are pivoting. And yes, to your point, like stay close to your domain of expertise and branch out then you can kind of avoid a hard reset, so to speak. It's like a vid another video game analogy would be create a new character with the same account so you can share the same stash and you can give them gear. There you go. I'm loving this. I, it's it's forcing me to re-examine my, uh, my project, which is to learn Go and uh, data analytics at the exact same time by writing my, uh, my new data pipelines in Go, you know, as one does. Yeah. We'll have to back burner that. I'm loving the use of a relatable experience, Josh, because I don't think a lot of people are extremely skilled at doing that or noticing, as you did, that, okay, this role where I'm working on the back end of these command line tools is actually not an extreme leap from where I was. It's close. Mm -hmm. It's not there. It still puts me a little uncomfortable, but I may not have to backtrack from level 70 to level zero, I might actually just be set back to like 40. And you might be able to power level yourself through gear, right? You know, using the gear example, yeah. if you can share, if you can borrow from that domain of experience and you're not completely starting over on a new account or whatever, you know, you might be able to play on normal or, or hardcore mode given your gear and that, that gear being the transferred knowledge of that existing domain that you had prior. There's also something about having pivoted before to have gone through the process of kind of losing the experience going from level 80 back to, to level one or level zero uh, a few times before where you recognize the discomfort, you recognize the 
oh yeah, that's right. This is the point where I need to power up by doing this and by doing this. There is almost like this expertise in pivoting. Well, uh, meta learning is a good term term for all of the stuff that's required in there. And in that 18 months that I was writing the book, I actually did a, a research spike on that. And of course, that sparked an, an idea for another book that I could have been writing while I was writing the first book that I never got to. I outlined it and I started it, but I never got to it. But yeah, several books in that domain, ultra learning being one that I talked about earlier, which is a really good resource for learning how to create your own learning projects. Like, so how to create a project around learning uh, so that it has clear uh, scope and end dates and stuff like that. Uh, and then other things like, uh, I believe it is um, The First 20 Hours by Josh Kaufman. And so that's about rapid skill acquisition and how to break things down. The 4-Hour Chef is another good resource. And they've got a good acronym, DIS, in there, which is uh, instructs you how to break down the different components and identify what's more important to learn. Um, and so, yeah, that uh, reskilling, uh, meta-learning is a good term for that. And there's a lot of good resources around there, but that in itself is a skill um, that you can learn. But I would say uh, it's a, a rate determining skill because your ability to learn your meta learning skills and all the things in there, like your ability to read and comprehend all those different skills will determine the rate at which you can pivot. And so if those are slower skills or lower level skills for you, you're not invested in them in a while, uh, it's going to take it take you more time to fit. So say you were in one discipline for 20 years and you've just become an expert expert. Um, and you haven't really had to learn other than a little bit to keep up with the tech you're working on, your pivot's going to be harder because you haven't had that transition and been forced to exercise those skills. Right. You need to strengthen, you need to keep the muscles strong and not let them atrophy. And that's the, the lesson behind the daily learning, right? So if you learn daily, then you can kind of exercise those on a micro level. Nick, it was really interesting to hear about Josh's struggles with long-form writing. It's not the first time that he was writing a book, but this type of struggle, I thought, was really interesting to to listen to somebody talk about going through it in the rear view. You know, this is somebody who writes for a living, and it was a struggle. I, I just really think that we need to understand that people who we look up to, and I really do look up to Josh as somebody who's been, you know, an exemplar of deep focus, deep work, um, really staying organized with smart notes, really introducing us to a lot of really cool ideas and, and their day-to-day -day tactical use still has problems. And it's really, I think, eye-opening to hear that somebody who's operating at such a high level can still go through the same struggles on a day-to-day -day basis or over like more of a, a long-term basis that, that all of us go through. I mean, would we have, would all of us, you and me included, and everybody listening, would we have the dedication and the discipline to spend two to three hours a day on a passion project that we wanted to see to to fruition and what does that really take in terms of what you have to do to get it there but also 
what does that do to you when you stop? Yes. And why would you stop? <laughs> right. I would have clearly stopped a lot earlier. I think that it was interesting to hear him reflect on the things that he would do differently. Distraction earlier on as a micro tactic. Pivoting as a macro tactic, right? Pivoting away just to, to give yourself some breathing room and then, you know, be able to go back to a project with, with fresh eyes and, and a fresh brain. Interestingly enough, very similar things, right? Give yourself something else to do and, and step away from the project just on a micro and macro scale. It's a form of mental rest. I mean, even though you're replacing the work you were doing with a different type of work, it really is a form of mental replenishment. I guess a lot of people don't really realize that. And if you need a good book on that one, go read Rest by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. It's one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years. And I would put Range by David Epstein right up there with it because a lot of the things Josh is describing about pivoting and getting this experience really hit a lot of the points in, in that book Range by David Epstein. Very cool. Very on brand for us, book recommendations on top of book recommendations. Absolutely. I have to say the long-term energy management, I mean, that is something that captivated me when I heard it. And I thought, oh, well, now it makes sense why when I read Charles Dickens' biography after he got finished touring and reading his books to audiences in a very theatrical and animated fashion, he was completely drained of energy and all depressed. They thought that maybe he had depression, but actually it, it might not have been that, thinking back to this episode. It could have mm -hmm. just been dopamine levels and that he didn't take the two-week milestone break. Exactly, exactly. I'm really excited to hear about Josh's uh, role, the, the role that he uh, changed to at Microsoft. But I think we might wait till next week to dive into that. Well, clearly we will because we've already broken from the episode. I just wanted to add in one more thing. If you are someone out there who's listening and you feel lost in your career, kind of like Josh described, you don't have to have everything figured out tomorrow. It's going to take time. It's going to take reflection. You need to be thinking about the, the elements of what you do that you enjoy and maybe elements of what you do that you feel are lacking. And maybe that can help give you some direction. And to Josh's point, those are things that we need to be sharing with our managers. Absolutely. I think that deconstruction of the things that we really enjoy and we really feel that we're, we're good at and being able to articulate those, at least at the very least, to ourselves. Like that is such, a, such an important exercise to go through. There's different ways of going about it having a conversation with a with an advisor or a mentor or a coach someone who is not necessarily emotionally involved in your life you know so maybe that initial discussion doesn't even need to be with your your manager you know it could be just with you know somebody outside your company somebody that you're you're close to and kind of an outside way or you could hire a career coach i mean we've talked to several on this show so just know that there's there's resources out there. You can talk to a friend, talk to a, a partner or a loved one. Heck, if you if you need somebody to talk to, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to to spend uh, 
30 minutes chatting with somebody like I'm, I'm not a licensed coach, but you know, maybe some of the, the, the things that we've learned, you know, we can kind of point you to some resources that have been uh, shared with us. So just keep that in mind. You're, you're not alone. We've all been lost. I've been lost twice this year. Please don't feel like you're the only one out there. And you may have to do some writing, journaling about it. Writing is thinking, right? Writing is thinking. It takes time away from your day to day, even if it's just 15 minutes or while yep. you go for a walk, let your mind wander. Agreed. Well, about time to get out of here, Nick. I'm going to shut it down right there. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. <laughs>